I'll get it. Uh, hello? Can I help you? Good evening. I was just in the neighborhood and thought I'd stop by to check in on your family. Wait a minute, aren't you the terrible axe murderer who's been all over the news? And uh, what's that behind your back? Is that a giant axe? Good eye, my friend. Nothing gets past you. Yes, I'm here to kill your family. Are they home right now? Oh. I hope you're not lying to me. You know that lying is wrong, don't you? Of course I do. Look, I- I'm pretty sure I can hear people in there. You sure you're not lying to me? If your family was here, you'd probably lie and tell me they weren't, just to save them, right? Yeah, I guess I would. So what makes it okay for you to lie to me now, when you just said lying was wrong? I don't know. But maybe we'll find out on today's show. Hey everyone, welcome to You've Got It All Wrong, a philosophy podcast for handsome people like you. I'm Chad Allen. I'm Paco Allen. And I'm America's sweetheart, Mark Sanders. So I'm sure everyone's dying to know if it's okay for Mark to lie to the axe murderer. And I promise we're going to get back to that and and answer that question definitively, but we need to give you a little bit of background info first. So today we're going to talk about the moral philosophy of Immanuel Kant, a German philosopher from the 18th century. Uh, Prussian? Yeah. So uh, not to sidetrack us immediately, Ugh. but... Is this going to be Star Trek? Uh, no, this is not a Star Trek-based uh, tangent. Okay. And, and and maybe nobody here has an answer to this, but like I've been puzzled about why Kant is considered a German philosopher when in the period that he lived, Germany didn't exist, and the part of Prussia that he lived in has never been part of Germany since Germany has existed and now is part of this weird isolated island of Russia. Like, in no period of time in history, I think, was the geography that he lived in ever part of anything that was called Germany. Welcome to our geopolitical podcast. You've got it all wrong. (laughs) That's just, it's weird that, like, everyone considers him a German philosopher when... He spoke German, and his family spoke German, and culturally, Konigsberg was a, a, a German exclave, right? It was right on the edge... Well, it's Prussian, which turned into one of the, the German uh, states. And he wrote in German. I mean, but it's, pr- I've, well, I guess, like, culturally German. Do you want to call sure. him a Prussian philosopher? Yeah, I think that I think I'd be more comfortable if we called him a Prussian philosopher. Well, like, for several hundred years, um, uh, Prague was considered um, uh, a German city, even though technically it was in Czechoslovakia, which then again also doesn't exist. But, but culturally, um, it wasn't considered Czech. Until uh, until the 18th century, there's a lot right. of uh, uh, fluidity, I guess, in the, those those U- middle middle European countries. Uh huh. Continue. I've ruined the show. <laughs> I've ruined the show already. <laughs> okay, can we resume yep. with the regular yeah. course of our events? Okay. Yeah, Mark, why didn't you let that axe murder in? <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, uh, so I, I don't even remember where I was. Emmanuel, you're talking about Immanuel Kant, the Prussian philosopher. So Kant wrote a lot about ethics, uh, very 
a common theme in ethics is the search for objectively true moral principles. So like moral principles that are not just made up by people, but are facts about the world. It would be really nice if we could find those things because then they would guide our choices about right and wrong. And obviously there's are lots of philosophers who believe that we can find those kinds of truths and that they're out there. And there are lots of philosophers who believe that those truths don't exist in the world and that morals are sort of our creation and that those rules come from lots of different places, but not from um, not from being objective facts about the world. And so Kant was a philosopher who thought that those truths were out there in the world and that we could get at those moral principles or those universal moral laws with our what he called pure practical reason or our ability to discover truths independently of our sensory experience of the world, so independently of contingent facts about the world. And the central moral principle that Kant believed he discovered or that he advocated for was a principle that he called the categorical imperative. Yeah, whenever I think of categorical imperative, I always think of uh, Prime Directive, but um, <laughs> we've already done a Star Trek episode. Yeah, thanks. So I won't go down that. Um, essentially, uh, yeah, like you say, it was, um, I can't propose three formulations. The first one was, uh, a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Uh-huh. Sorry, that's uh, Asimov's uh, um, uh, three Okay, sorry. Uh, so um, the, the, his first rule was, no bright light. No, uh. sorry, that, that's Gremlins. Um, <laughs> if it's your pause. first night at Fight Club, yeah, you must philosophize. Uh, his uh, <laughs> the formulation we're going to talk about is, uh, uh, and this is the translation from the uh, from the German: act only according to that maxim by which you can, at the same time, will that it should be a universal law. Uh, and I think that's a, a somewhat of an archaic translation, and hopefully, newer students um, see more. Uh, uh, punctuation and commas in that sentence because it's somewhat hard to pass. <laughs> but um, so, what does that what does that actually that, mean? This this means. Um, I think the best way to talk about what it means is, as we often do on this show, the the best way to to talk about what one of these sort of obscure sounding philosophical statements means is is through a thought experiment. Okay. Kant has a number of different um, thought experiments that he uses to kind of demonstrate what he uh, what he means by categorical imperative and kind of different aspects of it. But kind of before we dive into one of those, I mean, the way that I read the categorical imperative in kind of modern plain English is that you should only deem something morally right if you would want that action to become a universal law that everyone has to adopt yeah so that's kind of like the plain english version of it but like one of the most famous thought experiments or or most commonly quoted thought experiments that he uses to demonstrate the concept of the categorical imperative is the the one of the shopkeeper or the shopkeepers i don't know what the kind of official title of it is but it goes something like this so imagine there's two shopkeepers and let's say they both run candy stores because this story involves kids being potentially tricked by shopkeepers. Kids love candy. Yep. <laughs> so uh, candy store, toy store, whatever. So both these shopkeepers 
could overcharge these kids who buy candy there because they're kids and they don't know any better. So, like, theoretically, they could overcharge these kids and make more money. Yeah. But neither of them do that. They both charge a fair price for their candy, street value for the candy, not a penny more. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But there's a difference between these two shopkeepers. Tell me more. One charges a fair price because she feels it's her duty to be fair. She feels the principle of honesty is important. The other shopkeeper does it because she's afraid if she gets caught, it'll hurt her business. Right. So Kant argues that there's a real difference, a very real important difference between these two shopkeepers, that the first shopkeeper is the only one acting in a morally good manner because she's acting out of a sense of duty. Right. So even if the economy takes a turn for the worse and it would be (laughs) better for her business to overcharge the kids, she doesn't because honesty to her is a duty. Um, Right. That's the categorical imperative. Right. But the the second shopkeeper, I think to just like play out the thought experiment, even in an economic downturn, the second shopkeeper, the the dishonest shopkeeper, um, as he or she is often called in the thought experiment, also wouldn't overcharge the kid, but only because he wouldn't want his reputation to be damaged if someone found out, right? So, and I think the the intuition that Kant is trying to tug at here is that there's a there is, as you said, a difference between um, the shopkeeper who kind of does the right thing for the right reasons and the shopkeeper who does the right thing for the wrong reasons. So in you know the outcome is the same in in both cases which is that kids don't get overcharged for candy, but we have this feeling, we have this intuition that the shopkeeper who's only doing it so he doesn't get bad press is like is a bad guy. Right. Right. And so you know I think this starts to get at a lot of the categorical imperative and the concept of the categorical imperative are kind of related to this idea of the ends justifying the means or ends right. and means, yep. you know, and in this case, uh, or, or in Kant's case with the categorical, categorical imperative, you know, the, the means are, are the important thing, like the motivations and why you're doing something is the most important thing. And it's in huge contrast to, another theory of philosophical thought that we've talked about in a previous episode in terms of kind of determining uh, the correct moral actions to take, which is utilitarianism, which focuses on the ends, right? So in the utilitarian view, it's all about, you know, determining what's best to do is all about determining what's going to produce the best outcomes, the, the, the most beneficial outcomes that produce the most happiness or reduce the most most amount of suffering so from a utilitarian perspective you know this is this is where Kant's ideas really contrast utilitarianism which was a a a big kind of um movement before uh before he started doing his work in this area uh in, in a utilitarian point of view the two shopkeepers are the same because their their result is the same right like they're right. both charging a fair price and the kids are happy and they're no one's being cheated and they're both producing the same amount of happiness or the least amount of suffering. Right. So this is a case where I think, you know, from, as you said, like from a utilitarian perspective, both of these cases are the same, but we have this resistance. um, We have this intuitive resistance to thinking that the two scenarios are the same because we want to be able to say somehow 
that the uh, shopkeeper who's only doing this for selfish purposes um, is is not a good guy and that the other shop shopkeeper is a good guy. So if we want to step back and kind of talk about uh, talk a little bit more about the categorical imperative and how this why Kant presented us with this particular thought experiment. So what what he's trying to get at is that he wants us to be able to discover moral laws or universal maxims through pure reasoning. So he says, like, if we focus on the outcomes of our actions, like, which is what a utilitarian would do, if we focus on the ends, then we're relying on our experience of the world, we're relying on our experience of the outcomes of these actions to try to tell us something about morality. And what we should be doing is relying on, again, what what Kant calls our pure reason. We should be relying on what we can discover about the world from our reason. You know, then the question becomes like, okay, if we shouldn't just focus on outcomes, um, if we shouldn't just focus on the ends, well, what should we focus on? And what Kant says is that we need to find rules um, about the means um, that make sense for everyone all the time. So if we if we can't focus on the ends, we need to think about the means, and that means that we need to come up with some rules to tell us about what means we should take. Um, right. This is back to the idea of you should only consider something morally right if you would want that decision or that action or that rule about your your decision making process to become a universal law that everyone follows a hundred percent of the time. Right. And so that's kind of, you know, where he nets out in terms of, okay, can we let's let's set aside everything that we know about outcomes or like our experience uh, of the world in terms of which decisions produce which kinds of outcomes. And let's just think about how would we, you know, how can our reason lead us to a point of view about um, what's right and what's wrong. And so, yeah, he kind of comes to this notion of, you know, we'll forget about the consequences and the outcomes. Um, what kinds of moral laws um, would would satisfy our us as rational beings? And he, and he basically says, you know, like, yeah, it's the imagine when you make a specific moral decision, it, abstract that away to a general principle. So like when the shopkeeper decides to charge a fair price for the the candy, um, he's basically saying, if I abstract that away from my specific decision to like sell this piece of candy to this kid for a fair price, um, that would turn into a rule along the lines of, you know, don't cheat people. And if and if that rule don't cheat people is a thing that that if it were to become a universal maxim, you would want that maxim to govern your life, then then that's something that we should I that we can identify as as a moral principle. So I don't want to be cheated. And, and, I, and I and I think the 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 really critical thing is that the rules of morality that come out of this system are like dogmatic. Yeah. If you buy into this belief system that Kant is proposing, then if you say don't cheat is something that you think should become a universal law, that means you believe that everyone should follow that law 100% of the time. 
Like there are no excuses. There are no exceptions. There are no circumstances under which cheating is acceptable. It is always 100% of the time morally wrong. That's very German of him. (laughs) Sorry, German listeners. (laughs) Sorry, Prussian listeners. (laughs) Also, Prussian listeners, if you're listening to this, how did this transcend the space-time continuum to to go back to you in time? Please let us know in the comments. Um. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Paco, your point about the, the notion of these rules sort of applying universally or, you know, applying categorically, which is kind of how the, the, the categorical imperative gets its name. The story that we told at the top of the show is a different thought experiment that's meant to kind of push our intuitions in a different way. Right. So the shopkeeper thought experiment is meant to demonstrate how our intuitions say that the shopkeeper who treats people fair because it's her duty is a better person somehow than the shopkeeper who does it just because it's good for business. Right. We feel intuitively that one of those people is acting morally and one of them is just acting out of self-interest. The thought experiment that we open the show up with where a murderer shows up at your house and wants to know if your family is there so he can murder them and you have to decide whether you're going to lie to him about whether or not they're there that's meant to test whether or not you really feel like the categorical imperative philosophy is the best approach to guiding moral actions or moral right. decisions. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And this and this thought experiment um, was a product of a, a writer who was a, a contemporary of Immanuel Kant's, and that was um, Benjamin Constant, a, a French writer. His uh, full name, Henri Benjamin Constant de Rebecca. Um, Sorry, was, French uh, listeners. He was actually born in Switzerland, so he was he, he was born in Lucerne in seventeen sixty seven, which is um, which is critical because he also saw the French Revolution at the time, which was a another uh, you might say um, experiment, a philosophical experiment in in, um, in in how you treat your 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 fellow man ethically, uh, and that uh, ended up with a, a lot of executions. Um, uh, uh, Benjamin uh, Constant, um, he he knew that uh, obviously you need to go back to first principles, but he thought it was um, irrational to think that you should let your family be murdered for the sake of a an abstract generalizable idea. His his quote was, "The moral principle stating that it is a duty to tell the truth would make any society impossible if that principle were taken singly and unconditionally." So he he definitely was a a, a critic of, of of this particular approach. Yeah. So you know, it, it, it basically, the the weakness in the categorical imperative that the uh, neighborhood murderer uh, thought experiment reveals is that, like, <laughs> I, like you know, you're you're Kant calls him the inquiring murderer. Yeah, I mean neighborhood murderer. Or I guess that's what constant <laughs> calls him. Yeah. Neighborhood Murderer, uh, sounds like a new series on FX. (laughs) Um, So Dexter shows up to your door and wants to know... Your friendly neighborhood murderer. (laughs) Um, It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. (laughs) You know, the the weakness that this thought experiment exposes is that you're hard-pressed to find anybody, like, in the real world who would let the murderer know that their family's there because they feel like lying is a universal rule that it is your duty to follow the don't lie to anybody 
rule and that even in the circumstance where a serial killer is at your door and wants to know if your family's there so he can murder them, even in that circumstance, you're duty-bound to tell them the truth. Right. Yeah. Although though Kant did have a, a comeback, um, they, they had, uh, I wouldn't call it a dialogue, but they had a somewhat of a, a, a you know, public exchange. Um, and, and Kant's response would, was, um, it might be that I tell a lie by saying that the intended victim, uh, I, you know, your family, is not in the house. But because the ladder was actually, uh, unbeknownst to you, escaped through the window, um, that the killer then meets them outside because you've told them they're not in the house, and then they're promptly killed and murdered. So and by that <laughs> by that regard, he's saying, uh, if you always tell the truth, you can't be held accountable for what is what is uh, going on in the world that you're not aware of. You can only right. be aware of, of what you, you do know. And if you try to stick to the rules, essentially, um, then, then, you know, you, it's the best practice. Right. Yeah, I think actually that's a really I actually I didn't know that Kant formulated that specific response. I think this is kind of a cool moment in the history of philosophy because you you know a lot of philosophers aren't that well known. Famous philosophers, you know, are not necessarily all that well known in their lifetimes and so it's kind of cool to have this um story about a, you know, a very important philosopher who you know had this exchange about one of his what would become one of his most famous um uh writings like during his lifetime it's i think that's like straight away just interesting were they like sending each other like rebuttals via carrier pigeon well no i think that no these were publications i don't know off the top of my head where constance challenge was published but Kant published an essay called on a supposed right to tell lies from benevolent motives um in which he gave, I imagine, the the counterexample that Mark just posed and sort of reiterated his belief that in the categorical imperative and kind of doubled down on the idea that if don't lie as a universal maxim, then you have to stick to it, um, even in this scenario. And I think I think that that sort of counterpoint that Mark just just outlined is is perfect because you know, what Kant's trying to say is that, like, you can't try to optimize for the ends because, you know, not only, you know, might you get it wrong because your family is escaping out the window only to meet the murderer on the street, but if you start to optimize for the ends, then you ignore the means. And we saw earlier in the thought experiment with the shopkeeper that we think the means are important. And, you know, he also has this idea about the the notion of treating other people as rational persons with moral value. And so he also says something along the lines of, if you lie to the murderer, then you're treating that person as a means to an end. And while it may seem like in this particular case, that's going to get you what you want, it violates sort of a fundamental um, principle of morality, which is that we should not treat our fellow human beings as a means to an end, but we should treat them as an end in themselves. Yeah, that that's I think the wasn't that the the third rule? Um either that or, or never feed him after midnight. <laughs> I think don't feed him after midnight was the number one rule. <laughs> but ahead of don't what is the other one? Don't, don't get don't him wet. Get them wet. Yeah, no, yeah. no bright light. Don't get him wet. Never feed him after after midnight. Yeah, I mean, no, like in that no order. bright light was definitely the third rule. Or I, yeah. it's the least important whether it was red first or last. Like they don't like bright light. Like big deal, right? But 
feed them, they turn... For any non-handsome people listening, we're talking about gremlins. Oh, jeez. Yeah, I mean, I guess <laughs> if we have to inform people on that, it's disappointing, but sure, yeah, there are young people out there who've never seen gremlins. <laughs> if you feed them, they turn into horrible monsters. If you get them wet, they reproduce into horrible monsters. Like, right. bright light is no big deal. <laughs> like, bright, actually, bright light, like, that's a good one to know so that you can, like shine bright light and the horrible monsters you've right. created by yeah. getting them wet and feeding them. By the way, if you have not seen Gremlins, hit me up on Twitter at Chad Allen <laughs> and I will I will PayPal you the money to uh, rent it on Netflix uh, or rent it on Netflix. Amazon or whatever it is. <laughs> Nats. Uh yeah. <laughs> yeah, old people don't understand the the <laughs> revenue model for Netflix. I'll pay <laughs> Assuming it's not included in your current Netflix subscription. I will pay for you to uh, stream it from Amazon or some uh, other service, or I will mail you a DVD, I was going to say, but that also makes me sound old. I don't know. You need to watch Gremlins. I'll help you figure yeah. it out. Tweet at also, me. <laughs> also, you kind of need to watch Gremlins, too. It's one of the few weird 80s yeah. like horror, horror <laughs> movies that right. where the sequel is almost as good as the original. Well, the sequel's like super yeah. meta, yeah. right? No, it's like... Uh, it's like if somebody, it's like the people who made Troll 2 time traveled back in time and made the sequel to Gremlins. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, okay. <laughs> back to Kant. Yeah. Uh, what else do we have to say on this? I think we just need to vote. Okay. Uh, thumbs up, thumbs down on the categorical imperative, I guess, as a way to live your life or as a philosophical truth. What do you want to vote on? Um. Well, I don't know. Aren't those two kind of the same thing? Sure. Uh, as a way to... I mean, no, but... Judge morality and make moral decisions, the categorical imperative gets a thumbs up or a thumbs down from Chad. Uh, thumbs down. Mark? Uh, I, I, would, uh, I would echo the, the, uh, the wise words of Martin Luther King Jr. that the arc <laughs> of the moral universe is long... But it bends towards the justice, so I would go. Uh, I would go yes on the categorical imperative. All right. Well, Paco, I'm gonna go one thumb totally sideways on this one. <laughs> like uh, I feel, <laughs> I do. That is I, such I, a cop out. Well, okay. I mean, like if it's got to be binary, I'm giving it a thumbs down. Yeah. But I feel like the way that we all, uh, you know, I feel like Kant doesn't give a great justification or rationale for understanding why we should act on these specific duties like i don't think he gives a great formula for understanding what the maxims are or what uh defines a maxim right so like is not lying so like if not lying is one of these duties that we should follow 100% of the time all the time regardless of the circumstances I don't think he does a great job of explaining why being honest is a maxim or how you understand what those are or create those. So I think it's kind of like it's an interesting framework for saying if those maxims were universal laws or axioms like math where you could say 2 plus 2 is 4 and it's really hard to argue against that. And if you could say like honesty or not lying is as universally understood or as axiomatic as two plus two equals four then sure but uh, it, that's a pretty critical part of this that i don't think 
he does a great job of providing a foundation for. So I feel like we kind of all live our lives somewhere in between yeah. the categorical imperative Kantian way of morality and utilitarianism. And I, I think there's holes in both of those approaches. And I agree with you. I agree with you, but I, but I, but I still think that thumb sideways is a cop out. All right. So. One thumb down. All right. What did we do? We all just vote down Con- the categorical no, imperative. Are you no, kidding I, me? I, Mark voted up like very yeah. resoundingly. Okay. So two thumbs down, one that, thumbs up. Yeah, yeah, there's so, another quote from, from Kant where he said, uh, it doesn't matter what I tell the, the axe murderer. I don't know what he's going to do when I say yes or no. Yeah, I I mean... He could be crazy. He's an axe murderer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he's definitely crazy. The axe murderer or Kant? Both. Ah, all right. All right. Okay. All right. To the mid-show break. Hey, everybody. We want to send out an extra special thank you this week to all of our listeners. The show kind of blew up this past week. We had a ton of downloads, and our egos are all bloated and huge, and nothing makes us happier than that. So to all of our OG fans out there that supported us in the early weeks, thank you so much. It's your downloads and subscriptions and reviews that landed us on the new Noteworthy lists and made it possible for all the new listeners we picked up this week to discover us. And to our new listeners, welcome. We're glad to have you. Make sure you check out the past episodes. There's some good gems in there. If you enjoyed the Star Trek bit in the last episode, there's some fun Superman radio show shenanigans in episode 10. Episode 8, the ship of Theseus is pretty good. They're all good. Check them out and make sure you subscribe to the show and get the new episodes while they're still hot and everyone is still talking about them around the office. Okay, that's enough about that. Back to the show. And we're back. Uh, So I don't know about you guys, but I can't get enough. Can't. Oh, yeah. God, no, I was I was sitting on that for the entire episode. Really hoping oh. we were going to make it without that joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know that Mark is a co-host of this show, right? <laughs> I love dad jokes. Um, uh, talk, talking of dads, I didn't realize it, but um, uh, Emmanuel Kant's uh, father was of Scottish descent. Going back to our our theme in past episodes of the Scottish oh, really? Enlightenment, yeah, he. I didn't know um, that either. He even spelt his name differently. He spelt it um, C-A-N-T. Um, and it was uh, uh, Manuel that um, ended up uh, adopting the, the more uh, Prussian slash Germanic slash Russian um, right. spelling with a K. What was, our, <laughs> what was our previous Scottish theme? Like the theme of not knowing Scottish history very well at all? <laughs> yes. Yeah, of Mark not knowing the history of Scotland and of <laughs> I think, generally speaking. <laughs> I think we all fell pretty flat on our faces on our Scottish history. <laughs> yes, but Mark is from the country next door to Scotland, and we were I, talking about whether or not Scotland would secede from that country that Mark is from, Australia, and <laughs> Mark didn't know anything about it. Okay. I'm also half Scottish. My my mother is Scottish, and she's uh, she's distanced the family uh, irrevocably from the Highlands. Uh, so uh, I have no I have no lineage there anymore. Okay. Um, talk, talking about um, going back to to where you are from, um, uh, one of Kant's many many contributions to um, society and culture was um, around the uh, the term nostalgia. Which I found uh, 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 quite quite bizarre. Nostalgia uh, was originally 
um, a a disease, a, uh, a a situation you could you could find yourself in that could hospitalize you. And nostalgia was originally a disease based on uh, fondly thinking um, uh, of. Uh, of home homesickness we, we, uh, how, uh, how is it a disease i'm confused yeah it, it's a it was a, it was a type of melancholy it was a uh, before yeah. they there was a a real psychological um uh, diagnosis of of various conditions um homesickness was uh, was termed nostalgia from the greek uh, nostos but wait you said you home. could be hospitalized for it are you saying that in the 18th century you get hospitalized for being homesick yeah, there was uh, uh, cases of uh, Swiss soldiers who were fighting abo- abroad that could get hos- hospitalized and then even sent home based on acute homesickness. <laughs> and um, it was uh, okay. It, it was Immanuel Kant uh, in uh, 1798 that that uh, rejiggered uh, our notion of nostalgia, um, uh, where he noted that. Um, People who who did return home were usually disappointed because, in fact, they they didn't want to return to a place, but to a time, a uh, time of their youth. And ever since then, nostalgia became a yearning not for a place, but for a time. So I, I find it uh, amazing that he he was the one who pioneered the the change of place to time. Man, he did everything. Is there anything Kant couldn't do? <laughs> Well, I think that's probably why he changed his name from C-A-N-T, because he was like, I don't want to be the guy who can't. Right. I'm the guy who can't. Because I can. I can't. Uh, It's like the the line, are you an American or American't? (laughs) I mean, speaking of uh, Kant having a diverse set of skills and opinions and points of view... Uh, one of the things that, that Chad and I were talking about was, you, know, you look at the categorical imperative and, you, I mean, you look at any philosopher who has like a really specific or, um, you know, passionate point of view on something like morality and you wonder like, did, did this person live their life according to uh, these rules or, or, or this point of view that they put forth in the world? So we try to like dig around and, and get some dirt on, on Kant, which we didn't find. But in our searching, we came across... Seems like a pretty good guy. Yeah. Like yeah. N- like n- nothing sticks out where it's like, oh, a, a murderer did show up to Emmanuel Kant's door and <laughs> right. he let them in. Uh, right. So n- none of that. But, <laughs> you know, he, he's got this reputation as being like a really stiff, boring, you know, ate the same breakfast every morning and went for an hour-long walk every day at exactly the same time and was very antisocial. Wait, is that true? Um, yeah, I mean, supposedly all this stuff's true. I think that that's probably more true about his his later life. Yeah, okay. You know, but then we started to come across some stuff about uh, his his earlier life and his youth where he was kind of, you know, more of a socialite or, or more of a... Uh, you know what we might call today as a, a partier, but you know d- definitely was was known to uh, throw a good party in and and have a good amount of drink. And then Chad came across this this guide that Kant wrote to how to throw a good dinner party. And and, yep. and when you think about uh, his kind of like dogmatic approach to morality and the categorical imperative, he's got like the same approach to 
the rules for how to go throw a good dinner party. You know, like he believes that not lying is some kind of like universal law of how things work. And he also believes that there is the same fundamental laws for how to throw a good dinner party. So I'm just going to read a couple of these these rules or guides, which, you know, it's called a guide, but I think they come across more like rules of the universe yeah. about how a dinner party the, should go. So Kant, This is from anthropology from a pragmatic point of view, right. a book by Kant. Right. So he writes, uh, rule number one, the number of guests should follow Chesterfield's rule, no fewer than the graces, i.e. three, no more than the muses, i.e. nine. So <laughs> between three and nine, no fewer, no more. This is my favorite one is that he has like a structure for how the conversation at a dinner party should flow. Uh, it, it, when the dinner party is a full one and there is plenty of time, the conversation during the dinner party should go through three stages. One, narration or exchange of news. Two, lively discussion. Three, jest, i.e. play of wit. Sounds like something straight out of the Sheldon Cooper playbook. <laughs> My favorite uh, party rule that Kant uh, invented is basically the rule of Vegas, which is this. <laughs> Anything indiscreet that is said at the table stays at the table. There is a moral sanctity to the dinner party and a duty of secrecy because without the trust made possible by these, it is impossible to have enjoyable culture. Like, the dude invented <laughs> what, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> but then ironically also said, no dinner music whatsoever. And apparently he regarded it as one of the most absurd innovations in his time. I guess dinner music was like a new thing in the in the 18th century. He didn't like it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of my other favorites uh, starts with this weirdly paradoxical statement of, Dogmatism is to be forbidden absolutely, <laughs> whether it be on the part of the host or the part of the guests. When people get too serious and insistent, start making jokes to divert them back to play rather than business. <laughs> Sounds kind of dogmatic. Like you could, uh, you could write a whole book on like, yeah, uh, the, like a, like you could you could write a whole like sales book, uh, like Kant's philosophy of sales based on his party rules. <laughs> We should do that as a companion book to our holiday CD <laughs> or whatever it is that we're doing. <laughs> um, can we move off of the con dinner party rules thing? I just wanted to talk about the golden rule real quick. Sure. From party rules to golden rules. Yeah. <laughs> That's the name of the book. That's the name of the book. Such a great segue. Right. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, um, the, so it's interesting because the, the, Categorical imperative um, sort of gets um, uh, a, a lot of people think that the categorical imperative is sort of synonymous with the golden rule, you know, because the golden rule in one formulation or another says basically like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. A lot of uh, uh, thinkers have said that, you know what, the categorical imperative, any uh, decision that you would make if you turn that into a maxim, you know, you should wish it to be a, a rule of law. Like, people have said that that's essentially the golden rule. And I think, and Kant actually had a critique of the golden rule. 
um, and felt that the categorical imperative was very different from the golden rule, which is interesting. I also think it's interesting um, how frequently the golden rule shows up in different religious thinking. So it's it might be sort of the most uh, common theme across religions. So it's interesting because I think that it, you know, in the same way that Kant thinks it's sort of like a universal moral principle, it, it turns out that there might be sort of like weirdly some evidence for that in, in the sense that almost every religion takes it as a important principle. So, you know, we get our formulation of it in contemporary English um, from um, the King James translation of the New Testament from Matthew seven twelve, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, it also shows up in Confucianism as never impose on others what you would not choose for yourself. It shows up in Hinduism as hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. Um, it shows up in Islam as as you would have people do to you, do to them, and what you dislike to be done to you, don't do to them. And and I could go on. Like It really does show up in pretty much any um, major world religion that, that you can name. So I, I think it's interesting from that perspective that it does seem to be an idea that, that lots of that lots of folks who are thinking about morality sort of end up landing on. It's amazing how many of those um, societies and cultures also had slavery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> funny, that. Yeah, that is funny. Well, and then you, I think that's because you can... You can redefine what the word others means. Person means. To say like, yeah, exactly. Well, these people are others, and then these people are not others. Yeah. They're other others. Yep, and that's where, yeah, that's where terrible things uh, kind of are allowed to slip through the cracks of that um, apparently egalitarian uh, principle. We're all born equal, just that some of us are more equal than others. George Orwell? Yeah. Speaking of which, guys, uh, I have some listener mail. Would you like to hear it? Nope. Yes, please. Oh, no, yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. End of we'll the show. see you next week. Uh, see you guys next week. <laughs> okay. Uh, this comes to us from uh, Steph in New York. Hey, Steph. Who says, regarding your tagline, a podcast for handsome people like you. I know handsome can technically refer to both men and women, but in current usage, we don't say handsome woman that much. Does the tagline subtly imply that you think ladies don't enjoy philosophical discussions or incessant Star Trek references? Because we totally do. Uh, Steph, I, I I bank on the fact that ladies enjoy philosophical discussions and incessant, incessant Star Trek references <laughs> yeah, because exactly. otherwise <laughs> I would find myself totally irrelevant to the opposite sex. <laughs> um, yeah. So... Uh, I mean, I think this is an interesting question because as we kind of like rewind to the origins of this show and when we first started talking about doing this show and we were kind of working on what it was going to be like and what it was going to be called and kind of the structure of it and all the details of it. I mean, you know, we're we're, we're on episode, I think, 13, 13. is the one we're recording yeah. now. Um, but we've actually been working on this since... You know, the I think the the end of January two thousand fourteen, early two thousand fifteen in in, yeah. in various ways. And when we first 
started talking about things like taglines, you know, it was, uh, we talked about a lot of other shows that we listened, that we all listened to that we liked. And some of them had tagline like things and some of them didn't. And uh, we were just kind of throwing a bunch of stuff out there and somewhere along the, the, the way, I don't remember who started kind of going down this path, but this idea of a philosophy podcast for blank people like you, I think. Smart people or like thinking people. Yeah, yeah. I think there were like sexy people and, and stuff like that. And right. I think the thing that originally drew us to that was that they were just, it was just like this weird non sequitur line, like being handsome or being sexy or, you know, like you might think the the line would be a podcast for smart people like you, but somehow we got... But that would be boring. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of like on the nose. And somehow we got down this weird non sequitur path of, of uh, adjectives that had nothing to do with um, ideas of intellectualism or thinking or smarts. And yeah. and handsome had kind of this like throwback old timey vibe to it. Yeah, and yeah. and and for me, one of the first things I thought of because we definitely had a, a conversation about. <laughs> I know we were like, yeah, it, it like is 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 handsome a gender based uh, descriptor? And I remember talking about this, and it's one of those things that whenever I hear the word handsome, this 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 memory always pops in my head of. And I'm going to bring up something even older than Gremlins, which is a TV show called Cheers. Yeah, and there was there was an episode where Sam, the bartender of Cheers, like the main character, arguably, um, realizes he has like legit romantic feelings for the female lead in the show, Rebecca. And uh, in this episode, he has like he he's basically visited by a vision of Elvis. Um, while he's dreaming <laughs> yeah. or, or sleeping or dozing off on the, on the TV screen in the yeah. bar. And one of the reasons <laughs> that Elvis gives uh, Sam to pursue his feelings for Rebecca is she's a handsome woman. And I like, wait, oh, can what, you wait? Can, wait, wait, wait. Did you just do an Elvis impersonation? Well, I, I did an impersonation of whoever the actor is who plays Elvis on can that episode. Can you do it again? Well, he says, do it again. Sam, she's a handsome woman. Right. <laughs> You know, so so I uh, can I can I just make make a point that was uh, that was the actor Pete Wilcox in <laughs> um the nineteen ninety one episode season nine episode twenty six. What what else what other credits does Pete Wilcox have to his name? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I hope I wonder if his hair's ever been done by uh Joy Zapata. Um <laughs> uh, he he's also known for the nineteen eighty seven movie Dudes. Um uh, 1989 Wired, and uh, the 1983 blockbuster Going Berserk. I've never heard of any. Oh, wow. Of <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> anyway, so I mean, you know, we we definitely we definitely had a conversation about the word yeah. handsome, and you know, we we looked at the. I think we you know from a from a technical standpoint, we've got Miriam Webster on our side in terms of handsome not being a gender specific descriptor. Definitely in in modern times, it is more used you know as a as a positive aesthetic description of men but right um but anyway so i mean we definitely don't want our show or our tagline or whatever that is to come across as sexist that's not our bag and it's not what our intention was 
So we're going to throw this out to you, the listeners. Send us some new taglines. You can send them to us on Twitter at All Wrong Podcast. That would probably be good because it's short and it would force you to write taglines that we can actually say every episode. Or you can post them to our Facebook page. Just search for You've Got It All Wrong. You'll find us there. Or you can email your ideas to feedback at you've got it all wrong.net. And don't worry, if you can't think of anything else, we will. Chad will. And, and Mark will. <laughs> <I'm not. laughs> Is that your definition of we, Chad yes. and Mark? Yep. Yep. Wait, are you saying that we're going to change the tagline? I don't know. Well, you said if they can't think of anything, we will. Well, also, if you're a fan of the tagline, let us know as well. If you right. want to, there to keep you go. it, yeah. <laughs> it's not like we've, we've imprinted on a t-shirt yet or anything. Right. But if it's you, not, if yeah. you listeners want a t-shirt, uh, let us know. <laughs> yeah, there there definitely aren't a bunch of t-shirts that we just printed that will soon be collectors' items after we change the tagline. That hasn't happened. Yeah, it's not like we changed the name of the podcast or anything. <laughs> yeah, no. We definitely didn't have another name for the podcast before we launched and then no, had to change the name. don't make me think about it. What? Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, congratulations, everybody. We did it. Uh, another amazing show in the can. Um, we really appreciate the support from our OG listeners. And if you're a new listener, again, welcome. Hope you're enjoying it. If you are, why not give us a quick rating or review on iTunes? It'll be a huge help and help us spread the word to, to more new listeners just like yourself. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe. As always, you can find us online at you'vegotitallwrong.net. Uh, you can see the show notes there for this episode, episode 13, and all the past ones. Uh, and don't forget, you can send us your paradoxes, your conundrums, your riddles, your burning questions about the mysteries of the universe... Uh, you can email those at questions and you've got it all wrong.net. And you can also follow us on Twitter. The show's at All Wrong Podcast. I'm at M. Sanders. I'm at Chad Allen. And I'm at Paco Allen. I'm actually going to a Comic Con uh, uh, tomorrow. What? What? I'm going to Wizard Con. What con? Wizard Con. Really? <laughs> Who <what> the <laughs> f is that? <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, uh, San Jose. Oh, sorry, Wizard Wizard World. That's even better. Oh, it's pop, not a con. <laughs> it's a world ta tagline <laughs> where pop culture comes to life. <laughs> what is what? Uh, what? Um, okay. Bruce Campbell will be there. What? Why didn't you invite any of your friends to go to this with you? Uh, we, I only heard about it uh, yesterday. Uh, James Masters, he played Spike in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Okay, that's why I don't oh, know what you're talking like about. Like a million years ago. Uh, also, uh, Billy Boyd will be uh, at this event. Singing? The uh, uh, the Hobbit that, that nobody really remembers. Yeah, uh, Peregrine Took. Oh, mm. yeah. Okay, should we... Um... I thought that was the second half of the show. We're not done? <laughs> <laughs> no.